exploration is not a specific goal. You know, it isn't getting to the top of a particular thing. The attributes of exploration have more to do with doing something you've never done before and you don't know what's going to happen. When was the last time that you really explored? It can be tough these days. If you want to find something, just Google it. And if you want something done, just hire somebody. So what's the point? What's left? What do we stand to gain from exploration? I think people sometimes would learn more, get more of a sense of gratification without somebody doing it for you or telling you exactly what to do. Before we get to the show, let's send luck to one of our fellow Meister fans. Rob, a mystery person, would like to wish you best of luck at Western States this weekend. That is quite impressive. And this mystery person says, you'll know who he or she is, and you can thank them later. You have all of us at your back, Rob, not just this mystery person. Best of luck to you. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mountain Meister. Today with us on the other end, it's Steve Swenson. Hi, Steve. Hi, Ben. So, Steve, you were a Meister recommendation from somebody we had on the show uh, not too long ago, Raf Salinsky. And I'm just going to introduce you with some words from Raf. Here's what Raf had to say. One of the things things I really admire about Steve, among, among many, is that, again, he seems to be able to strike this balance between, until recently, a very demanding professional career, a family, a wife, and two kids, and climbing at really the highest standards out there. Um, so he's a recipient of the Jolador, the Golden Isax, for a first ascent in the Indian Korakoram. He has climbed K2 in Everest without oxygen, um, has this career just spanning many decades. And the other thing that I really enjoy about Steve is that he has recently turned 60, is one of the fittest people I know. And more than anything, he just and still enjoys climbing like a kid. Welcome, Steve. Thank you, Ben. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. So, Raf had some nice things to say, and I honestly, like, I want to give you my first impressions. And after doing my research, I find that I tend to agree with Raf. It kind of seems like you have everything figured out. <laughs> I think all of us, you know, like, what, what, I think what we see on the surface with everyone is 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 all their successes, but uh, what you don't see are the are all all the things that uh, that didn't work you know all the all the all the plans that didn't come to fruition uh you know the, the days that you were really discouraged um and i think that probably more than anything else i'm really persistent mm. um you know uh you know you know we all get knocked down you know over and over again and uh and i think that the strength of character you know that that we can all aspire to you, you know is uh is is to get back up again and to try it again. You know, uh, you know, we don't we don't have to climb the peak on the day that it seems dangerous, uh, but but we can come back uh, and 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 we can try it again and again. And 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 I think that you know part of the, the you know, probably the main thing that keeps me uh, 
you know, stoked about this, all of this, this activity for, for year after year is, is that it's really not so much about these individual goals, you know, getting to the tops of these individual peaks, but, but the kind of the process, you know, of trying to do these things that, that I think really kind of challenges us to every day, you know, to kind of be more the person that we want to be. Right. At the beginning, it was neat how you said you only really see others' successes. Um, but then from a more personal perspective, it's interesting how the losses or the failures sometimes hurt more than the gains feel good. It's just kind of an interesting contrast between like the grass is greener when you look at other people and then for you, uh, these losses hurt. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of my uh, focus in climbing has really been on uh, big mountains in South Asia. And uh, when I look back on that, you know, my first trip to Pakistan was in 1980. But my first real big success, you know, uh, was the Northridge of K2 in 1990. And so there were 10 years there where I went on a number of trips that, you know, we didn't we didn't reach the summit, you know, of, of, of these peaks. And, and, you know, so that was a long time. And, uh, you know, it was probably not until then, and, you know, that I started really kind of figuring out, you know, how this works and how to do things as safe as I can. And it wouldn't been, have been that surprising uh, to, you know, somewhere during those 10 years to say, oh, I didn't really want to do this, you know. Hmm. So what kept you going? I just, um, you, you know, it's it's kind of what I wanted to do since I was a little kid. You know, you know, to me, the kind of the aspirational aspect of it was was pretty compelling. And and I think partway through the process too, I got to really enjoy the process more. Partway through all these attempts, I I began to enjoy the process more. I I, I realized that I was learning and I was learning a lot and I could see that it was coming together and I knew, you know, probably halfway through that time period that, you know, I was going to start having success. Mm-hmm. I think that that was fun for me. It, it made it so that I wasn't as discouraged and, and it actually started just enjoying being there and, uh, you know, just having these opportunities to, to be in such cool places. Yeah. So you said you you loved climbing as a little kid, but I read that you weren't drawn to climbing from your parents, which often is the case and is the case for many parts of life. And also, I, I think I read that they weren't even the biggest fans of you climbing. Is that true? They weren't too fond of it? Yeah, I I, I got interested in, in climbing from books. Um, I was um, probably third or fourth grade, so I was probably like, 10 years old and uh we had a bookmobile that came to the grade school where i went and and there was a librarian in the in the bookmobile who kind of got to know that i was interested in natural history so she would you know put a few things on the shelf every month you know books about you know adult nonfiction uh books you know arctic and antarctic exploring and mountain climbing and i just read that kind of stuff from when i was really young and so then i started uh hiking in the cascade mountains in the pacific northwest with some boy scouts and one of the dads uh in the in the in the boy scout troop that i was in started taking us climbing when i was about 14 and so i was just really excited about that my parents didn't really do any kind of 
you know, we did some family camping, but nothing really very um, exploratory or any, any, anything more than that, really. But but it did give me an appreciation for the outdoors. We had plenty of opportunity to run around outside. And, and I think initially, you know, my parents thought that being out with the Boy Scouts and hiking in the mountains was very wholesome. But then when they started to uh, realize that I was getting involved in kind of more technical climbing, that then I think they, they uh, were worried about my safety. Do you, do you think that was because of a lack of knowledge? On their part? Well, I think probably the lack of knowledge on their part was a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, I can remember in high school, friends coming by to, to pick me up to go climbing, and my mom would say, uh, have fun hiking with the ropes. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, you know, they were more worried about my uh, brothers and sisters who were off driving the family car to to go out on Friday and Saturday night, you know, that they might wreck the car or something like that, then they, they didn't really know what I was doing, which is probably a good thing. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think for them, it was really more just kind of a, a lack of understanding, you know, of, 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 uh, of, of something that was really different than what they were used to. Um, you know, they were pretty religious people, you know, who had kind of a system for how they lived their lives that that worked really well for them. And, and it was a little bit harder for them to understand that I want to take a little different path. But, but um, you know, my mother's passed away now, but, you know, my, my dad and I, we get along great now. I, I think he, I don't know that he totally understands it, but I think that he, he, he appreciates that I like it a lot. Was it hard for you to accept that they didn't really understand it? One thing that I learned from somebody who was, you know, much wiser than me when I was younger was that, you know, sometimes people in your family or people you work with where, you you know, you don't necessarily have control over those relationships like you do with your friends, that they're not always going to get it. Um, and But yet they're still important people in your life. So... To be honest, what I, you know, when I finally realized that you know my parents weren't really going to get it, and that they weren't really going to kind of stop pestering me about or saying things to me that hurt my feelings about it, was that I just put together a top ten list that I gave to them and said, "Here's the things you should never say to me, uh, and we're going to get along great," you know, and uh, uh, and that really worked. Really. Uh, it really worked. Uh, uh, it, you know, it, it just kind of gave each of us a set of rules, you know, to, to go by. And, you know, I, I sometimes just think that in families, people uh, feel like uh, uh, some, that, that somebody's going to wake up in the morning and have this epiphany and all of a sudden, you know, they're going to be totally into whatever it is you're doing. And that just is unrealistic. It's, it, you know, sometimes you just kind of have to tell them exactly what to do and what not to do. And then things go much better that's hilarious i like that a lot although i I honestly i don't think i need to give that list to my parents hi mom Um, (laughs) so looking back at your climbing resume steve one might think that you did it as a full-time job but sponsored climbing really never existed at least when you were in your 20s do you wish it had would you have liked to be a, a sponsored climber i think that 
I mean, I don't know what I would have done, you know, at that time if I had that opportunity. Um, it, it's really hard to say. I, I, I can't really predict, you know, what I would have done. Um, I think the way that it turned out for me um, was worked out well. Um, uh, you know, I I went to school to learn to be a civil engineer and uh, worked for a consultant that um, for various different reasons, um, I was able to work out um, a work schedule where I probably my entire professional career, I never worked more than nine months a year. Yeah. Uh, and that allowed me to go on climbing expeditions. And then when I was married and had kids, uh, you know, also, you know, have, you know, time off to do, you know, fun vacations with them as well. Um and and I think that it it gave me enough financial resources to to really be able to do all those things in a way where you know I wasn't having to live out of my van or when I went off on expeditions I wasn't leaving my family behind you know in in a in a tough financial situation so uh, you know to me I think uh, um, you know having a profession uh, was pretty important uh, to for me to being able to balance all the different things in my life uh, uh, because it gave me, uh, you know, some reliable, uh, you know, reliable financial resource. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another thing which has changed pretty drastically over the course of your climbing career is media. Uh, it's digital now and it seems like everybody can start a podcast, a blog, a social media account, whatever it is. Um, how do you feel about this whole change in media, how anybody can tell a story or give an opinion? Well, I, to me, I love storytelling. Uh, you know, I'm in the process right now of writing a book that is all about storytelling. And, and, and I think storytelling done well is, 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 is one of my favorite things. Uh, I, I think where, you know, all of the new media to me becomes more difficult or problematic is that a lot of it's sort of driven by commercial uh, motives, you know, so uh, we, uh, we end up, you know, putting climbers in situations where, uh, you know, their commercial sponsors want them to really be talking about well, you, you, one of the things I don't really like so much is 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 like if I'm going on a trip, I don't like to talk so much about what I'm going to do uh, because there's just so many reasons why you know plans in the mountains change. Um, you can have bad weather, you can have you know politics or uh, strife, um, health. There's so many reasons why, uh, you know, going off to some of these places in the world that are still relatively unexplored, uh, you know, that that things just aren't going to turn out the way that you think they're going to. So I don't like to talk about what I'm going to do. You know, I certainly enjoy, you know, having conversations with people and 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 and, and writing stories about what happened but i think that people get kind of pushed into uh having to tell people about what they're going to do by their by their by their sponsors um you know and and i i uh um and and i also think that um sometimes commercial sponsorships you know that that 
you know that that athletes uh, who are ambassadors for different brands also it affects can start affecting the kinds of adventures that that they want to have. Um, so, for example, I've seen that that some athletes, you know, the way they get evaluated is on their social media numbers. Um, uh, you know, and the easiest way to have have the kind of social media numbers that their sponsors want them to have is to be doing things where they have ready access to the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, But yet I think some of the most interesting places in the world for people to go exploring, you know, that a lot of that kind of uh, communication and, and, and um, ongoing, you know, almost uh, real time posting of what you're doing is impossible. So, um, you know, uh, fortunately, you know, uh, we, I'm, I'm sure it'll be there sooner than I think, but I think there still are places in the world where that kind of communication isn't as, it's either really expensive or difficult. So I think it kind of discourages those kinds of people from maybe going places that they might otherwise go. Yeah. And also what you said there about how things can change, right? You, you don't like to tell people, uh, what exactly you're doing because there's so many variables involved. And that reminds me of uh, somewhere I read, I think it was this book called Anti-Fragile, where if you really look at the success rate of strategic plans, you know how companies have like these visions, these 10, 20-year visions, and they do all this strategic planning around them. When you really look at the success rate of those, there's so much that can change down the road uh, that when you try to just have this very direct path, uh, you get too focused and then you aren't able to kind of pivot on that path. Uh, obviously there's a balance involved because you do need to have a direction, but I think that's kind of a similar, uh, a parallel. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly in my consulting career, did yeah. a lot of stri- strategic planning and, and, uh, uh, comprehensive planning for, you know, big utilities. So how do you uh, feel about that? Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, in business, I think it's really important to have a strategic vision for what you want to do and and mostly, you know, really to have a, a set of priorities, you know, for where you want to make your investments, um, you know, to kind of help you, um, you know, really kind of tap into whatever markets or, or whatever it is that you, you, you're trying to do because that's changing all the time. And, and uh, you know, I think a good strategic plan would be one that have would have a lot of flexibility built into it so that, you know, people, you know, wouldn't, uh, you, not so much that people would be able to get distracted, but also, but, 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 but one that wouldn't discourage, you know, people from being very entrepreneurial and taking advantage of new opportunities as they arose. I think in climbing that, that, uh, um, that kind of flexibility is really important to be safe. You know, I mean, it's, it's happened to me many times, you know, that, I've gone on expeditions where we had a particular objective and then we got there and snow conditions or other factors, you know, rock fall or something like, you know, temperatures made us decide that what what we came there to do wasn't the right thing to be doing given the conditions that we were facing. And so we went, climbed something else in the area that was better suited to the to what it is that we found and i think to be safe in the mountains uh being flexible is really important more mountain meister coming up in a bit but first a word from our sponsor buff 
I'm Tracy Daly, and I'm the product manager here at Buff USA. So I have like this vision of walking into the Buff office and everybody's wearing one uh, just in a variety of ways. Is that true? You know, it, you might be a little bit disappointed. Okay. We do. Um, we do sport our brand, but typically, while we are in the office, we're we're not doing too many activities that um, require a buff. Although um, I have to be honest, the air conditioning gets a little bit cold sometimes. So I I will put a buff on um, yeah. for protection from the air conditioning. I feel like you could just have one on you at all times, just in case. You know, it's great um, when I'm traveling. I, I do use um, my merino wool buff. You know, when you're traveling, you want to keep some of the that blowing air off of you. And I, I tend to use mine on long flights for an eye mask as well. But, oh, good idea. Yeah. Wow. Uh, so I coincidentally was making cold brew iced coffee for the first time this morning. Nice. I don't know if you've ever made cold brew I haven't coffee. tried it yet, no. Okay, so... The way that I was making it, I needed to use a lot of coffee filters. Right. Um, and I was thinking of using my buff as a coffee filter. You could give it a try. You would be amazed at what people have used their buffs for. Yeah. Uh, it, and that's what makes it such an awesome tool in the backcountry. It's kind of like your multi-tool accessory. Mm-hmm. But um, people have used buff for a stuff sack pillow, mm. holding ice packs, which is kind of a scary thing, even a tourniquet. Wow. Yeah, but it makes a great dust mask. People use them for leg warmers. I mean, we're constantly amazed by what our customers um, tell us they use our buffs for. For 15% off however you want to use a buff, type in the code MEISTER, M-E-I-S-T-E-R, at checkout at buffusa.com. Thanks. On to the show. So, so we talk about these changes from climbing 45 years ago to now. Here's a tough question that I don't know how you're going to answer. Where do you envision climbing being 45 years from today? You know, I think that um, climbing will probably continue to progress along the lines that it has, you know, for the last 45 years, which is, you know, lighter, faster, and, you know, steeper. Um, people will develop better gear um, that, that, that's lighter and stronger, that, and uh, people will learn more about hu- human physiology, so, you know, how they can train uh, to be more uh, fit for a particular thing that they're doing um uh and uh, you know i i think that uh you know the things that amaze us today about you know you know what we're seeing people do um will just become more routine yeah does anything worry you um i think that the the thing that worries i don't know if these things worry me but uh i think that the things that we need to be the most uh, careful about is is less to do with um, what's happening at the cutting edge of climbing. I'm I'm really impressed at what people are doing. You know, at the top end of the sport, I think people are being quite creative and doing amazing things. Um, what what I see happening um, with a lot of the rest of us is is kind of a dumbing down of of what I consider to be 
the, the exploratory nature of what what we do. Um, I think that as people get busy, as people feel like they have to be connected all the time, as people's employers and their family and their friends expect them to be connected to their phones and everything else all the time, that, that the actual, you know, people actually getting away to actually have, you know, a true exploratory adventure um, is becoming less. And, and the real growth in alpine climbing is not people doing things on the cutting edge, but people who um, are going on trips where, uh, they have somebody else doing all that for them and they don't really get the opportunity to learn and to make their own mistakes and, 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 and to, you know, kind of have their own kind of personal adventures and, you know, develop that over time. And, and I think that though, that's what concerns me. People almost taking, well, just because of the availability of information, you can almost take shortcuts without having experience. Well, I think, and it isn't just the availability of information; it's the availability of of, of people that you can pay them. Mm. You know, I mean, the classic example is on Mount Everest. You know, when you see hundreds of people that are up there, and you don't even need an ice axe to climb Mount Everest anymore. I mean, there's fixed ropes from the bottom to the top. You've got, you know, um, um, Sherpa support that's that's carrying all the stuff up there for you, and you have people walking to the summit that have a Sherpa walking along with them carrying their oxygen bottle and they just have a plastic tube, you know, going to the client, you know, that's, that's, you know, breathing the air, you know? And to me, I, to me, I think that, that, you know, exploration is not a specific goal. You know, it isn't getting to the top of a particular thing. It's really the attributes of exploration have more to do with doing something you've never done before and you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, I love Yvonne Chouinard saying, you know, adventure starts when things go wrong. And I, I, I think people sometimes would would learn more and I think they would get more of a sense of gratification if they took the time and broke free of a bunch of these encumbrances that we have now that just tie us to to all these gadgets and uh, go out and just experience the natural world, you know, and let go of some of those things and experience it yourself uh, in your own way without somebody doing it for you or telling you exactly what to do. Well said. I uh, A little story, um, I, I do some volunteer work in the summers when I'm not overseas with the YMCA program we have in Seattle and they take some kids up to Squamish and I had these two 14 year or yeah, two of them up on the apron on the chief and we we're doing some multi-pitch route and we're about halfway up and one of these 14 year old boys was a little, you know, he's enjoying it, but he was a little bit afraid and, and he turned to me and he goes, this is too real. Mm-hmm. And I said to him, yeah, you know, and I said, you're with real people. And, and I said uh, to him, I said, and you know, you know, if you get more of a chance to do things like this, a lot of that other stuff you're doing every day is going to start to seem too fake. And, uh, you know, I mean, just so many of these young, these kids are just connected to some kind of a screen 24-7. And they really have very little opportunities to actually experience something that's real. Yeah. I wonder... What the generation, so you're saying that about 
this generation. I wonder what the generation before you said about your generation. I I don't know. You know, um, certainly, you know, we have to be mindful of creeping old fartism. Uh, and, uh, you know, um, I see creeping old fartism, you know, signs of it that that you don't have to be that old to, you know, for that to be be present. And I think that probably people, the generation before me, probably, uh, I don't know what they said about us. I think they probably really. said something about the car, maybe. I don't know. I mean, this is, we're talking like two, at least two generations before yeah. me, so I'm not yeah. sure. Um, yeah. yeah. But I, I always wonder... Because I, I agree with you that this seems like a, a problem, and I guess time will tell. Like you know, this attachment to da- to gadgets and the changing of the social scene. But at the same time, we, I think we also need to keep in mind that people have always said, like, "Oh, the good old days." Sure. So I, I don't know. Time will tell. Time. Time will tell. Yeah. Time will tell. We'll yeah. See. But right now, in this point in time, we're going to get your gear recommendation, <laughs> Steve. So we like to get one from everybody that comes on the show. Let's hear a piece of gear that you'd recommend to our listeners. And we're leaving this wide open. Well, you know, the thing that comes to the top of, he- top of my mind right now in terms of a gear recommendation is not something that um, you could go out and buy. Um but it's something that you could go out and have somebody make for you or you could make it for yourself that um, that I found to be quite helpful and, you know, for doing big alpine routes on mountain faces. Uh, it's very suspenseful right now. You've set this up nicely. The big problem that, that we have, you know, when we're climbing a big technical mountain face is how are you going to spend the night? Uh you know, people have looked at different ways to kind of try to resolve that and, and, you know, solve that problem. And, you know, people came up with portal ledges, you know, so for big wall climbing. But on big alpine faces, portal ledges don't really work because you're not hauling like you are on a big wall, and plus they're too heavy. And uh, so um, a few years ago, my friend Mark Ritchie, who I think has uh, been on this program, uh, was talking to some Russian climbers, and he came up with this idea that uh, we've ended up calling it the, the Ritchie Ice Hammock. And uh, I think in one of the recent Alpinist magazines, there was a little one-page article about it where Mark actually even uh, gave some plans on how to build one. But what it is, is a very simple, large rectangular piece of nylon uh, that has two nylon loops at each end that when you're chopping a ledge in the ice, you can chop the edge out of the slope and you can scoop it into this hammock that you've anchored on the edge of the ledge that you're chopping and fill it full of this ice so that the hammock sticks out from the slope, you know, mm-hmm. uh, with, with the ice that you're filling it with. And it makes and, a ledge. And it makes a ledge. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you kind of look at the the – the, the volume of ice that you have to chop using this this ice hammock cuts the the volume you have to chop in about in half wow and um, and these very lightweight hammocks they weigh about two ounces 
And uh, we've used these on alpine routes in the last few years. And I think that they've really, in, in some ways, a simple thing, they kind of revolutionize, uh, you know, at least for, for me, you know, the, the, um, the, the ease with which you can create a bivy mm-hmm. on a steep, steep, uh, steep mountain face. You have to wonder how long it's going to be until somebody starts making those for profit. Is the, yeah, market, is the market big enough? I don't know. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's uh, maybe not. Otherwise, it would someone would <laughs> would have would have start doing it because right now it's you know shareware. <laughs> you know the, yeah. the 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 you know Mark just gives away the the, the plans for how to make one, and I know uh, Rafael Solinsky, who you mentioned at the beginning of the program. Used one when they climbed uh, K6 West. Uh, we used a couple of them when we climbed uh, Sasser Kangri 2 uh, a few years ago. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, people are starting to, to use these things. Uh, and uh, to me, I think uh, it's, it's a piece of gear that is very simple but can be critically helpful in these situations. Maybe that'll be Mountain Meister's first physical product. Uh, a mountain meister ice hammock and for me it'll just be a regular hammock <laughs> good recommendation we'll throw it i'll try to find some resources on that put it on your page thank you steve um the last question for you and that's how we found you or got you on the show it's who do you want to hear as the next person on the show you know i think uh i'd like to hear colin haley uh uh, Colin is uh, active climbers from the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I've known him for a long time, and he's had amazing success in Patagonia and Alaska. Has done some trips in Asia. He um, he just came back from Nepal, uh, where he was there in the Langtang Valley, trying to do um, some climbing there uh, uh, when when they had the big earthquake mm-hmm. and. Uh, he has a pretty dramatic story to tell about uh, what happened uh, to him in the earthquake. Um, he's uh, living right now these days up in Squamish, uh, British Columbia, and uh, I think he would be a, a great person for uh, your podcast. Excellent. We'll try to get Colin Haley on a future episode. He's more than welcome. Steve Swenson. Former American Alpine Club president, uh, been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. For the listeners, check out highlights of today's episode on our website on Steve's Meister profile page. You also have a blog, don't you, Steve? I do. Steve Swenson's blog. Steve Swenson's blog. Dot com? Exactly. Nice. Oh, I meant to ask you, and I've, I've asked a couple of people this. I saw, I saw that your son golfs, right? Yes. I correct me if I'm wrong because pretty much everybody has tried to correct me. I think that there are a lot of parallels between golf and climbing. Do you agree or no? Well, uh, first thing I have to say is I'm no golfer. You're no golfer. I'm, I'm a terrible golfer. Um, but I have uh, walked around golf courses with my younger son quite a bit, um, watching him play golf and. Um, Golf doesn't have the same kind of cardio athleticism mm-hmm. that something like climbing or running or, you know, a, a sport like that would. But I think it does have some similarities 
just the mental aspect of it. Um, I think that it seems to me like like good golfers have to be able to remain calm mm-hmm. you know in in spite of like bad things happening yep which i think is 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 kind of like climbing if if you get into a situation where you're scared and you know you're trying to get yourself through that uh and get past that i mean i think that's something you oftentimes encounter as a climber and i I think that with golfing, it, it, it appears to me that, you know, sometimes you can, you can have a bad hole, you know, where, you know, maybe you had a double bogey. And, uh, you know, I think the good golfers are people you, 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 you them, see them turn right around and, you know, they get the next hole's a birdie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they, they just don't let those things bother them. They, and, and uh, you know, so I think that kind of mind uh, – you know, control their just being able to stay calm when uh, and 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 talk yourself through it and not get too flustered is is seems really really important in golf and certainly it's important in climbing too. I also think that in both of them, uh, you can occasionally drink beer during both, and also your significant other may get mad at you for doing it too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I do tease my younger son sometimes because when he was younger, he used to like to play baseball too. And I said, you know, if it's something that you're doing where you can uh, drink beer and smoke cigarettes while you're doing it, it's not really a sport. <laughs> Steve Swenson, <laughs> wonderful having you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Meister fans, that was Steve Swenson, former president of the American Alpine Club. We've had other folks, other presidents, executive directors. Just search American Alpine Club on the search bar on our website. You'll find all episodes related to those. Pretty nifty, I know. There's also a deals page on our website where you can capitalize on the Buffs deal and all others. Even a free audiobook where if you buy that, we get paid. Seems pretty good. We also have a comment section on every single Meisters page, so if you have thoughts on any of the episodes, I know I would love to hear them. And I know you love listening to my voice, so thank you for listening to another episode of Mountain Meister closing in on 140. Whoa, that's a lot of podcasts. Until the next time you hear my voice, enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen. My name's Ben Shank, and you've been listening to Mountain Meister.